Welcome to From What If to What Next, your hopefully by now utterly indispensable fortnightly deep dive into the world of imagination, the power of what if, and hopefully reconnection with this oh-so-important part of your inner life. Walida Imarisha once wrote in one of my very favourite quotes ever, whenever we try to envision a world without war, without violence, without prisons, without capitalism, we're engaging in speculative fiction. All organising is science fiction. Today we're going to go deeper into the power of fiction, the power of dreaming, of utopias, of imagined futures. It's going to be pretty thrilling, I think. This is the point traditionally where I pause and tell you how this podcast is only possible because some fine and treasured people support what we do here at patreon.com slash from what if to what next, giving us a donation every month which enables us to produce these podcasts sounding as fabulous as they do. So if you enjoy today's discussion, and I can guarantee that you will, then please do consider subscribing. It really helps. Thank you. So the term Afrofuturism was coined by Mark Deary in 1993 and has since been given many different definitions. Cherie R. Thomas defines it as speculative fiction from the African diaspora. Ingrid Lafleur describes it as a way of imagining possible futures through a black cultural lens. And for Itasha L. Womack, it's an intersection of imagination, technology, the future and liberation. I love that. It's a term that covers a dazzling diversity of art, literature, filmmaking and music, from Sun Ra's cosmic space explorations to the music of Arrested Development and Parliament Funkadelic, the writings of Colston Whitehead and Octavia Butler, and a tradition of black utopian writing that goes back to writers such as George S. Schuyler and W.E.B. Dubois, and further back until it's thought around 1859. More recently, there's the concept of the black fantastic, which we'll also explore today. What can the black experience of imagining and celebrating different futures, the imagining of black utopias, of asking powerful what-if questions while doing so from a position often of experiencing systemic racism, the prison industrial complex, slavery and much more, teach wider movements for social change and climate justice? So our question for today is what if Afrofuturism could teach the world about the power of (laughs) what-if? And I'm so delighted to introduce my guests today. So Dr. Priscilla Lane is Associate Professor of German and Adjunct Associate Professor of African Diaspora Studies at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her book, White Rebels in Black, German Appropriation of Black Popular Culture, was published in 2018. She also published essays on Turkish-German culture, translation, punk and film. She recently translated Olivia Wenzel's debut novel, A Thousand Serpentine and Angst, he said in a terrible lack of German accent, which will be out next year. And she's currently finishing a manuscript on Afro-German Afrofuturism. And Dr. Dennis Chester is a professor of African-American literature at California State University East Bay in Haywood, CA, California. His interests include all manner of topics related to African-American literature and culture with specialities in the Harlem Renaissance and in contemporary genre studies. Dr. Chester's recent activities include published articles on African-American crime fiction and presentations on Afrofuturism and the characteristics of black speculative fiction. A recent Fulbright fellow, Dr. Chester is also very interested in the diasporic aspects of contemporary black writing and exploring the ways that black literature and black people move within and across national borders. Wow, welcome both to From What If to What Next. It's an honour to have you both here. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Nice to meet you too, Laura. So, we always start this show by inviting our guests to join me in my time machine. 
and to indulge in a bit of speculative fiction uh, of my own. My time machine has been lovingly built from parts both real and imagined. I'm just going to adjust the settings here. Actually, you know, last night we used it, Ben and I used it to go back and see Jimi Hendrix's first ever gig, which was a lot of fun. It was in a half-empty basement of a synagogue in Seattle, but feeling that he'd been showing off a bit too much, the rest of the band fired him between their first and second set, which was a bit of an anticlimax. Anyway, I've changed the settings now from 1959 to 2030. There we are, and I'm going to invite you both to close your eyes and to get comfortable and to imagine that you're traveling forward through time to a 2030 that's the result of everything that could have been done being done. A time of incredible social and cultural transformation. And the 2030 that you emerge into now is far more equal, just, fair, inclusive, beautiful, very low carbon. It's a shift and a transformation that was deeply influenced by ideas and thinking from Afrofuturism and the Black Fantastic by rapid mainstreaming of the black utopian tradition and the black imagination. Those tools, approaches, those media hugely inspired the unlocking of the collective imagination that was vital to this shift happening in the way that it did. I'd love you to walk us around in that world. How is it different from 2021? What's changed? How does it feel and taste and sound different? Dennis, maybe could we start with you? Sure, sure. Thanks for inviting me into the time machine. It's quite pleasant here. <laughs> um, as I emerge from it, though, I, I see myself still here in Oakland, California, where I live. And I'm walking around seeing that the decisions that we made in 2021, they're things that take some time to put in place. So we still see things still developing. It's still, uh, uh, in terms of attitude, I think that we have changed our perspective, but we're still doing the work to bring that attitude into actual fruition. So as I look around Oakland, I see people busy doing the work of putting solar panels everywhere, changing our energy footprint. When I think about uh, Afrofuturism, Afrofuturism for me, it means a sort of a vision of the future that includes Black people as sort of fundamental partners in creating everything that is necessary for that future to work. And it's a critical practice that looks at uh, um, future images that either don't include or misrepresent Black experience. So the way I see this future in 2030 as I walk around today, I'm seeing those, those, that critical practice being put into place. I'm seeing that all of the kind of uh, transformative, transformative experience, the kind of transformative uh, energy, the transformative uh, activities of people all around trying to change this world, it is happening in communities, in black communities, in communities of multiracial communities, which are all active in doing the work to make this world transform. It's really inclusive, and uh, I see Oakland as being a much brighter place in this 2030. Thank you. Thank you so much. Priscilla? Yes, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to, to have traveled in the time machine. For me, uh, I feel that we've learned a lot from having um, dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic in you know, 2020 and 2021. We've learned how important it is to make healthcare accessible to everyone. Um, and we've put a lot of efforts into that, allowing people, you know, equal access to healthcare, shifting a focus to preventative healthcare. I find, yeah, when we walk around the neighborhood, we see a lot more community gardens, people thinking about what they can do locally to promote good health and uh, also to promote sustainability. So, you know, 
local small gardens, um, helping the young people get more in touch with nature and, and understand better where their food comes from and the importance of shopping locally. Um, we see more bike paths, um, people trying to be more active in their daily lives and impact their health in those ways. I, I also um, am happy to see that Biden's uh, infrastructure bill was passed. Um, so one of the effects of that is that childcare uh, has been positively impacted. Um, childcare workers are being paid a living wage. Families can afford uh, childcare without any trouble. Young children are, you know, in preschool, in daycare, without families being in debt or struggling. And finally, I would say I see more trust in our educators and education. Uh, I see teachers uh, from kindergarten through college having the chance to kind of determine you know, the curriculum that the young people need, young people being encouraged to think critically, uh, to think outside the box, to um, engage in practical activities that help address real world problems, but also allow them to be imaginative. And as, as a mother of a, of a second grader, <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to see children running around more and engaging in that kind of imaginative, imaginative play and, and not uh, as uh, strapped to their devices as they've had to be <laughs> during this pandemic is a part of the way that families have just had to to cope. Mm, thank you. Thank you both so much. That was beautiful. Yeah. And I guess the best place to start would be to hear from you both what Afrofuturism and the Black Fantastic to mean to you both. Priscilla, I watched a talk you gave where you said that it refers to imagining alternative worlds and realities as a way of seeing liberation for Black people, whether psychologically or physically. What does Afrofuturism mean to you both and why does it matter? Priscilla, can we start with you? Sure. Um, for me, one of the one of the most important parts of Afrofuturism is representation, uh, and that that goes hand in hand with imagination. I am very touched by stories I've heard of of um, black people, you know, born decades before me, who who lived in a world where it didn't seem as possible that that black people could be whatever they wanted to, or or could work in in certain kinds of jobs or access. Uh, certain kinds of education. And for a lot of my ancestors, you know, seeing a representation of that, whether, you know, fictional or hearing someone's story, someone who was able to break through barriers, would inspire them to try to do the same. And so for me, part of Afrofuturism is, you know, whether it's, you know, seeing Black people in space on a spaceship, you know, working on a spaceship or exploring other worlds or Black people um, in a position of power in the future. It's about, you know, shaking off, of, shaking off the restraints um, that we often get in a racist society and instead um, just kind of letting your imagination run wild and thinking of all the different things that you're capable of. For me, it's also about the fact that, you know, a lot of the struggles we've had, um, particularly in America, when it comes to dealing with racism, we face these struggles again and again. You know, I think of the Voting Rights Act 
you know, in the mid sixties, we may have thought, oh, okay, that's been taken care of. That problem has been solved. And now today we see, we still have the same problem of people trying to restrict black people's voting rights. So part of Afrofuturism is also recognizing that things can be circular. You know, it's not just linear progress. The same problems can come up again and again. And sometimes that requires think a complete thinking outside of the box and possibly using tools that we haven't used in the past or using tools that we may not have thought we may not have imagined would be possible. Thank you, Dennis. Um, like I said uh, a moment ago, the way that I see Afrofuturism is kind of in two parts. On the one hand, it is about representation. So it's about people of color, Black people in particular, being able to create these future images that show us doing things, that show us taking part, active partners in whatever this future is, and that show us creating a future that is one that, you know, that is uh, embracing, we all want to take part in. But in addition to sort of that, that expressive portion of it, I also think that Afrofuturism is a lens through which one can critique things that have been produced or how things are being produced. It's not just about producing the image of the Black person. It's about looking at how other images of the future are being created that leave Black people out or that misrepresent the concerns and interests of Black people. I think um, just an example of a kind of a popular topic in a lot of Afrofuturist um, contemporary film, right? Um, there's a short film called Afronauts, right? And the short film Afronauts, it focuses on the Zambian space, space program from uh, 1964, I believe, which was you know, Zambia in 1964, was a newly independent country. And this is the time of the US and Russia having their space race. And Zambia, which is a country which is newly independent, not a wealthy country, doesn't really have the wherewithal to create a space program in the way the US does. But they create this space program. And the recent film, Afronauts, kind of looks at that experience. And it shows the Zambian space program as being an interesting sort of critique of the US and Russia creating this image of space that is one that is sort of optically white, that does not include black people in it, right? Um, at the time of the US space program, you have people contemporarily, you have Gil Scott Heron, you know, writing poems about, you know, well, they're going to space and Whitey's on the moon, but black folks aren't included. So with the film Afronauts, it is looking back at this event which is looking at this larger sort of space program event and saying, well, wait a minute, that does not include a view of black people. So these new statements, well, so we have to insert this black presence. We have to show that this black presence has things that are valuable to, to, to view the way that these things ha can happen in the future. So I think it's important to think about it as both sort of an expressive mode, but also a mode of critical thought. Mm. So what is it this distinct about Afrofuturism? What do its different manifestations have in common? And what distinguishes it from other futurist traditions like Russian or Italian futurism? How would you define its kind of key elements or key values or principles, Dennis? One key aspect I think is important about Afrofuturism that expands upon and transforms what Mark Derry says in his sort of initial definition, right? So Mark, De Mark Derry's definition is focusing on an African-American perspective, right? He says African-American culture. But the more work that is happening in Afrofuturism, I think, is speaking specifically to diasporic connections, right? So not just Black Americans, it's Black people spread around the world. And so we have Black Afrofuturist work from people in the Caribbean, from people in Germany, from people around the world. And that, I think, is a really important portion of it. 
um, it is speaking beyond sort of national boundaries and showing that the kind of concerns we face are global concerns, not just located in one place. Those, those specific local problems are definitely important, but Afrofuturism tries to make those specific local ones connected to this larger diasporic connection. I think that's an important aspect of it. Thank you. Priscilla? And I think that's a way in which Afrofuturism has evolved, like the conversation within Afrofuturism. When I think of earlier texts uh, from the early 20th century from the U.S., like uh, Pauline Hopkins of One Blood or George Schuyler's um, Black No More, they were very much centered on American debates. Sorry, my cat is hungry. Um, so, you know, there was there was a this major focus on kind of... Um, stressing Black people's dignity. So, you know, as, as an African-American, often the struggle was um, you're descended from people who were ripped from their culture, from their homeland. You may not know very much about that past. Um, and so a lot of Afrofuturist texts early on were inventing a past, you know, especially this fantasy of, you know, the kings and queens um, in Africa, like Black Panther, you know, so imagining the royalty and all the knowledge that Black people actually come from now, since then, there's been a critique of that sort of Afrofuturism. Like there is the term Afrofuturism 2.0, which Reynaldo Anderson is, is very much involved in conceptualizing this idea that it's no longer important to prove to white people that we are smart, that we have a past, that we have a culture. But instead, it's about, as Dennis was saying, you know, uh, understanding what are the struggles globally within the diaspora? How can we help each other? For me, one of the things, important things that sets Afrofuturism apart from other futurisms is, you know, I look to the work of someone like Octavia Butler, you know, who would be a, a later, you know, it being uh, writing in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, et cetera, um, uh, a later thinking that is more feminist. You know, for me, uh, one of my favorite quotes from a book of hers is from the book Dawn, where these aliens, you know, uh, uh, the world has gone through this catastrophe, you know, nuclear war, and the, some aliens rescue a few humans and tell the humans, you know, the fault of you, of humanity was hierarchy. And so for me, Afrofuturism is not about, you know, it's not about an inversion. It's not saying white people, you got it wrong, you know, and now black people need to rule the world. Instead, it's about trying to find a society where, you know, we respect each other and our differences. You know, it's feminist. It's, you know, accepting of all genders and sexualities and just trying to live together, you know, sustainably and in peace rather than holding on to old ways of thinking, whether it's patriarchal, you know, heteronormative, et cetera. Mm, mm, thank you. And uh, the the poet Rilke once said something like, I don't remember the exact quote, but something like, the future must enter into you a long time before it happens. So I wonder why do such stories work? How do they affect people? And what, how do they work once they get inside of us? Like kind of utopian sort of fiction. How does it work on us, Priscilla? Well, for me, a great example from Germany, actually, is there's this um, performance that a Black German artist did in the theater called for The First Black Woman in Space. And she opens the performance talking about Mae Jemison, who is an African-American astronaut, and how Mae Jemison got the idea of going to space from watching Star Trek and seeing Uhura, right? So there's this example of a real person seeing a fictional representation and then thinking, I want to do that, you know? So that's how I imagine that, that 
um, often it's it's we have the fiction first to kind of plant the idea and then we work to make that happen like it's, so it kind of creates a new north star uh in our lives as it were dennis any thoughts on that yeah, I, I think that is uh, very much true. You can like you can look at speculative fiction. I think this is true not just for Afrofuturism, but for speculative fiction in general. You can see images of the future and ascribe, you know, ascribe to want to be part of that future, right? So it definitely does change people. I think Afrofuturism is particularly important for uh, people who are marginalized. I think that Afrofuturism is an inclusive act. It's trying to bring people in who have not been considered. And I think that's important. I think that that body of people who don't have, you know, uh, their stories told as frequently or as directly or as in the center of our conversation through Afrofuturism, they get to become the center. You know, I think that um, one of the things that uh, Priscilla said a little earlier was about how um, uh, Afrofuturists are not interested in uh, not interested in simply joining sort of a larger centered white sort of version of, of artistic work, right? They're, they're drawing upon stuff that happened sort of in, the, in the Black work of the 1960s, which was like, you know, we're striving to create Black work, and Black work is work by Black people that is primarily or first or first for Black people, right? So we're writing to this audience, and if others are joining that audience, well, that's a good thing, but the audience that is being considered primarily is one of people who have previously been marginalized, people who have not had a chance to have their stories told. And I think that's a really important aspect of, of, uh, of Afrofuturism. It tries, it tries to speak to this audience first, an audience which frequently is only seen second, third, or even last. Yeah. It seems to me that there are different aspects of black politics that have been incredible at keeping, partly through the use of utopian fiction, huge what-if questions and ideas alive in times when they look impossible. What if we defunded the police? What if there were no prisons? And in a time where our survival depends, I think, you know, from a, from a climate ecological perspective, social justice perspective at this point, on our ability to ask really good what-if questions and sustain them uh, in the world around us. Uh, you know, what if we could create a society and an economy that used a fraction of the CO2 we use today, but in which we lived, be lived better, more delightful and more satisfying lives? What can the world more widely learn from how those questions have been kept alive and nurtured over such a long period of time? Uh, Dennis? This question is speaking to sort of the longevity of Afrofuturism and speaking to sort of how Afrofuturism stories have changed over time and what they have what they've maintained and carried since the 1800s or 1900s? Is that what you're asking? I, I think it's, it's more like, you know, when a big question like, what if there were no prisons? Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you, in, in, a, in a world where, there, where everything seems to be rigged against that ever being possible, mm -hmm. and there's new prisons being built all the time, and all the money going into building new prisons, and the judges taking the money to send more and more kids of color to prison, how do you keep a question like that alive? Mm -hmm. How do you feed and nurture in a culture its ability to keep asking really big, bold, what if questions and not sort of just giving up and saying, well, that's never going to happen? I, mean, I think that's been kind of the process of African American literature in general and Afrofuturism in specific. If you look at, say, uh, W.B. Du Bois writes a story in the 1920s called The Comet. And in The Comet, which is a, Du Bois' sort of you know, only entry sort of into science fiction, I guess, right? So Du Bois' The Comet, it imagines that a comet has passed by and has destroyed, you know, has killed all life on Earth except for one black man and one white woman. 
and it imagines, well, what can happen if all of these racial ideas, all of the racial hierarchies that are in place are done away with? And how will these two people engage with one another? It's a really fascinating kind of short story. So that's a big what if that Du Bois is asking right there at a time of really sort of heightened and increased uh, uh, racial violence. So Du Bois imagines that. But that same question gets carried over in later works of black fiction, right? So we can go from Du Bois writing that one question in the 1920s to what Ralph Ellison does in 1951 with Invisible Man, which is asking the same questions, right? How do you maintain this, this resistance against oppression, regardless of sort of the, the direction that oppression is coming from? That's just been the long tradition of African-American general, uh, African-American literature in general. Afrofuturism as a part of Afro-American expression, when you get into the 50s and Sun Ra, and Sun Ra starts you know, doing his musical explorations of trying to create images of Black people in the future, Sun Ra's music is giving a new kind of vibrancy to those kind of questions by bringing in these other kind of cultural aspects besides just the texts that Du Bois was working with, by bringing in visual and musical aspects to it. It allows that that, that narrative to be spread wider to different populations, different audiences. So I think that these what if questions maintain because this cultural trend has just hasn't stopped. Black people have been and continue to be uh, producers of important cultural work that sees, you know, that tries to say, what can we do differently? Thank you. Priscilla? I think part of uh, what keeps these what if questions going and what makes them a possible reality is the young people, you know, and, and I use that broadly, partly children. You know, when I look at my son, you know, someone, a, a kid who's five wouldn't blink twice at the idea of a car talking, for example, or my son has said to me, when are we going to space? Not if are we going, when are we going? He already thinks it's possible. Right. Um, so I feel like if we start young, you know, if we were to ask grade school kids, what, what, how would you imagine a community without prisons? Like, what are some other ways we could punish people? How, how can we work towards restorative justice? I feel like young people probably have amazing ideas and, and are a lot more open to the possibility. And I also feel that this category young people includes college students, you know, because I see with the students that I work with, they're really eager to think differently and to try to conceive of something else. So I think, unfortunately, that often there's a time where you you reach an age where you just can't possibly you can't imagine it being any any different you know but i i think oftentimes we just have to like make the change happen and wait for people to catch up you know like so some examples for me are like um you know desegregating the army you know um or desegregating schools you know i'm sure back then if you asked white adults could black and white children go to school together? They, what? That's ridiculous. That's impossible. But you put some children in a room together, you know, in preschool, and they're just going to play together. So I think that's an example of how young people are often wiser than adults um, and that they will, they will really be able to, to keep or to, to lead this change that the world needs. Mm. Yeah, so many of these podcasts end up coming back to, so we need to change the education system. <laughs> it's just where they all end up because we just keep perpetuating so much stuff with the current system. And I wonder if you could both say a little bit more about, you, you mentioned Sun Ra there, Dennis. I love Sun Ra. And, and the, the, about imagining alien life and space travel. And uh, how does how does this idea of imagining space and, and time travel help with 
the issues being faced by black people trying to reimagine their reality on the ground here on Earth in 2021? What's the link between imagining kind of fantastic space utopias and living on Jupiter and and so on? And how does that actually help us to change the world in 2021 when we walk out of our doors when we finished having this conversation? Priscilla? In Sun Ra's day, there was probably this this idea that, you know, we have no idea what's out there, you know, especially you think of the, you know, the late 60s, the moon landing, we were at the very beginning of space exploration, anything probably seemed possible, like, you know, finding other being, other life forms, other civilizations. Um, unfortunately, I sometimes think that our imagination of space has been getting narrower rather than opening up more. I mean, honestly, when I read the news and follow this kind of a race between, you know, Bezos and Musk and, uh, you know, about space travel and exploration, it kind of feels like um, something that Yatasha Womack warned of is coming into fruition. So you mentioned her uh, previously. She has a a really great book, Afrofuturism. She also has this great text online called The Race for Space, where she warns, you know, going into space can't just be about reproducing what we already have on Earth, Mm. right? It's not about colonialism, you know, reproducing hierarchies and injustices. But then I look at a picture of Musk and think, okay, this is where we're heading. We have these rich white men who are looking to, you know, go uh, set up, you know, communities in space. So I think that hopefully our our imagination and the potentials is still there to think of something different, but but we we are in danger, I think, of of just kind of reproducing what we already know. Yeah, uh, I think that's a really good question. And I'm also interested in, in sort of the way that space is being recreated at the moment through Musk and, and uh, Jeff Bezos and so forth. I think that these images of space, they really do speak to kind of a replication of the very same things. You know, I talked about the, um, the, the zombie and space program and what they were trying to do and how they, that was a criticism of the U.S. space program, which was ignoring folks. So I think that uh, what Priscilla has just talked about, uh, the, the Musk and uh, Bezos kind of replicates that again. I think that the power of Afrofuturism and the power of pretty much all sort of creative cultural work is that it's metaphoric, right? So we see these things, we say that uh, the story we tell about someone in space isn't necessarily really about space. It's really a metaphor for what's happening down here. And I think that um, readers, audiences are aware of those metaphors and those metaphors are what allow people to see the change that, that the author imagines in the text. Those metaphors allow people to sort of bring them and internalize them and see them in themselves. And that's what allows Afrofuturism to be a tool to get us towards this future that we want. We create these metaphors that people internalize, and then that myth that then sends them out into the world to make the kind of change that the text has, has imagined. Mm. Actually, if I can follow up, I, I just thought of this film that I've taught before, District 9, mm-hmm. you know, to think of another South African. Yeah. <laughs> I think the director is South African, Blomqvist. To me, that what part of what make that, makes that such an ingenious film is that so much of our sci-fi, right, is about the aliens come, you know, they attack us and at the at the best, like, oh, and then we bond together as, as humans of Earth and we fight them off, yeah. right? And in District 9, it's interesting how he complicates that question by saying, 
you know, what if the aliens come and they just need our help? You know, they're, they're basically like migrants or refugees who are in need of help. How are we going to treat them? And, and how does how we treat them relate to how we treat other, you know, marginalized people in the world? So for me, that's, that's an example of sci-fi kind of pushing the question a little further and getting beyond the fantasy of, oh, the aliens are going to be bad and they're going to try to take us over. Instead, I think it, it would be more interesting to think of if there is life, you know, out, out, out in the universe, like what are other ways we can think of engaging with them that yeah. don't have to do with domination and fear? Yeah. yeah. If I can follow up on that, <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of texts in Afrofuturism that totally reimagine the idea of alien contact and what that alien contact is going to do. Um, a work that I'm working with right now is a Neti Okorafor's Lagoon, which is set in Lagos, Nigeria, and it's about aliens who first arrived there and how that sort of interconnects with what, how that community changes things, right? So the aliens arrive and they are seen as both sort of very similar, but also very different. And we are able to sort of see both kind of uh, the things that are human-like in them and therefore reflect upon our human experience, but also see the things that are very, very different. And that's the very, very different and sort of unknowable, unknown. And those are sort of our ideas of the future, how things might change and go to different places, different ways of seeing things. Yeah, there's a lot of work in Afrofuturism that this idea of alien contact is just presented in a very different way. God, we could we could talk for hours and hours, and and you've and you've both cited some great uh, uh, some great reading for people who've who, who've enjoyed this and want to explore these idea ideas further. So the the last question I wa- I wanted to ask you is about imagination, which is the theme that runs through all of these podcasts, which are really an exploration of how we might build what people are starting to call an imagination infrastructure if we recognise that a challenge like the climate emergency really demands us to reimagine everything, economics, transport, food, agriculture, everything. And at the moment, our collective imagination is just not up to it. It's been sort of dumbed down and and, and sort of oppressed and, and constrained. And so we really need to rapidly see a huge increase in society's ability to see things as if they could be otherwise, one of my favourite definitions of imagination. How can learnings and insights and lessons from Afrofuturism give us an, a clue as to how we might start to build the collective imagination infrastructure? Where, where might we start? Priscilla, maybe we'll start with you. I'm really intrigued by the concept of, uh, I think, problem-based learning. Um, it's it's not something I know a lot about, but I think in, I think it's Finland, they've shifted to this in their schools. And that's this idea that stu- children work on a project, you know? So instead of like, you know, math problems or, you know, the usual, like, write this book report, you can have a problem like, how do we clean this dirty water? Or, you know, this habitat is endangered. How would you... Uh, you know, save it. And I really like that because for me, it it just makes a lot more sense to show children how what they're learning in school is based in reality or or can be useful for later. And also empowering children to say that you can do something, like you can problem solve, you can fix problems now, even before, you know, you're older enough to vote. I think empowering children to feel like agents, you know, who can do something in the world, um, is very, very helpful. And, you know, I, my son, he has this book about Greta Thunberg, you know, that he's fascinated by, because I think kids are really excited by the idea that people 
young people are doing things, you know, and shaking things up and getting the world's attention. I would also say that, you know, any any kind of uh, way that we can promote imagination among kids, you know, and some of that is stuff, you know, that's existed for a while. My son loves Legos. We have like feels like millions of Legos, <laughs> but like I'm amazed at the things he creates, you know, that they just have this draw to make you want to just sit there and come up with something. You know, he loves to draw things like that. Um, I think um, if we, you know, encourage kids to just kind of, I don't know, it, part of it is also mindfulness, meditation, you know, close your eyes and, you know, what kind of world could you imagine or or what could you see yourself doing as a grown up? For me, all of those kinds of activities, I think, would really benefit our children and and therefore society. Beautiful. Thank you. Dennis? Okay, so, so talk about imagination and uh, how imagination and Afrofuturism can sort of uh, help things as we go forward in the future. One of the things that, um, that I forgot to mention when I was doing my uh, our, our time travel kind of thing, one of the things that I wanted to bring up was that um, one of the most dystopic kind of characteristics, I think, of present-day society is sort of the manipulations of media and the manipulations of sort of knowledge and truth kind of things, right? So that I think that... Um, I think that things like social media are really transforming the way people understand the world in, in very negative ways in a lot of ways. So part of my vision of this, of this future is that we come up with some kind of way of addressing these kinds of concerns, these kinds of manipulations of, of thought, manipulations of, of, of thinking. And I think that the idea of imagination is going to be one of the tools that we're going to be able to use to overcome this sense. I think that uh, just kind of talking off the top of my head, but I think that when people are in kind of uh, um, social media spaces, that's not a space of imagination. That's a space where one is sort of imposing a thought upon you that you come to internalize and think of as your own. Whereas imagination is where you can sort of engage with other things in different kind of ways that allow you to, I don't know, to not be persuaded, not be led but to be able to engage and think about things from your own imaginative perspective. So I think Afrofuturism promotes this kind of imagination, promotes this kind of, of, of imagination that resists these ideas of manipulation that I see in social media and other kinds of media. Thank you both so much. This has been such a rich and delicious conversation. I'm really, really grateful for you joining me here today. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Yeah, thank you for your question. So my deepest, deepest thanks to both of my guests here today and to you for listening and hopefully subscribing and to Ben Adicott for his deft and sublime editing and polishing of the rough diamond that is from what if to what next. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.